Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Sukoon, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nasimko. My name is Farhana Kasamali, and I will be your host through this journey we take together towards holistic wellness within an Islamic framework. Join us as we speak to community leaders, experts, and mental health and wellness professionals who will enrich us with their healing words, stories, and personal journeys on the path to wellness. So verily, with every difficulty, there is relief. Verily, with every difficulty, there is relief. Surah al Shira, verse 5-6. through six. Join me every month as we begin these essential conversations to promote our community's well-being and healing, as we begin to unravel the ways in which we as a community can heal individually, internally, and also collectively in unity. Please note, this episode contains themes of depression, anxiety, and other potentially triggering discussions. If you or someone you know is in crisis or in need of support, please look to our show notes for resources. I'm really honored to introduce our guest for this month, Sayed Samir Ali. Sayed Samir Ali currently serves as a Muslim chaplain at the Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He completed his Hosa studies in Qum and then received a graduate degree in religious studies from Stanford University. Sayed Samir has worked on interfaith bridge building projects aimed at unity within the Muslim community and outreach to prison populations. Welcome, Sayed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, it is uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you, sister. Firstly, on behalf of myself, as well as all the staff, executive council, and member jamaats and community members, I wanted to offer my sincerest condolences on the passing of your brother-in-law, Alana Sayyid Asad Jaffrey. We are still so heartbroken that we have lost a leader like him so soon. Thank you so much uh, for the condolences on behalf of the organization, and it indeed is a great loss, both for our family and for the global Shia community as well, and he certainly remains an irreplaceable uh, figure for all of us. I think those of us who even just listened to him, I had the honor of meeting him and taking his classes, um, the the loss just, just really hit me. And I wasn't even related to him. So how have you been handling and the family been handling such a, it's just a gaping wound for us. I just don't have any other words to describe what it feels like for the Shia community. Yeah, I think uh, one of the Hadith traditions we have from the Imams of the Ahlul Bayt is that when a Alam passes away, there is a gap or a crack within Islam that cannot be filled, that cannot be replaced. So he had a very unique role. I saw him uh, grow from being a student to learning, to becoming a speaker, to becoming a speaker, to becoming a very, mashallah, successful uh, speaker and the struggles that he had to go through to bring, to both receive that knowledge and to bring it to the people. And to answer your question, sister, the it's hard. <clears throat> grief and loss are there and there's confusion anger all the emotions that usually accompany grief but ultimately we trust in Allah's plan we know that Allah has something better for us and we know that life and death are in Allah's hands so that brings me comfort that brings my family comfort and I'm hopeful that we will as a a family and as a community 
uh, grow to honor his legacy and 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 do things that would honor the legacy that he left behind, even in his short life of less than fifty years. Yeah, I can only imagine how how nice family get-togethers must have been with him. He seemed like such a jovial person, just on the member and off the member. Uh, one thing I will say about him, he was a very simple person. One thing I will always carry with myself until I return back is that he was not a very, his desire was not for uh, luxury of the world. He was very simple in the things he liked. He liked his uh, chocolate cake and his glass of milk, and that was it. <laughs> um, and his, his vision was for Islam. He really wanted uh, the community and, and 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 the Muslims to kind of be proud of who they are and what their roots are and what their faith tells them. So I, I feel that he left that he left that behind as he returned back to God. That's an important message to carry to carry with us in our day to day lives. I wanted to share that in his honor, we have established the Sayyid Asad Jaffrey Bursary Fund to support needy students wishing to attend a Sadiq school in Toronto, where Milana worked as their director of religious affairs. To our listeners, please contribute to this fund to support the work he left doing as a form of Sadiqa in his honor. So Sayyid, I wanted to ask you, a lot of us are really struggling right now. I think when we see the events going on in Gaza and Palestine, we just we cannot make sense of it. And then, you know, we also see as Shias, a lot of um, anti-Shia attacks going on in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And then I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I read that Pakistan is forcing the Afghani refugees who have been settled there for decades, pushing them out. And it seems like this constant churn, and this is on top of, you know, issues in the Congo and Sudan. And then when Marhum Sayyid as a Javik, when he passed away, it just felt like, okay, this is too much now. It was difficult to reconcile. It still is difficult to reconcile. You know, I still find myself doubting, like, or not doubting, but did he really pass? Did he really leave me on this earth? Like his lectures were my saving grace, you know, they got me through times. And then when we're seeing all this, we lost someone so fundamental. How I don't understand. I think a lot of us are finding difficulty in reconciling all these things, these emotions. It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I mean, I want to acknowledge that everything else that's going on and that's been going on since early October with all the global events uh, that you mentioned, sister, are certainly a cause for confusion a cause for being uh, feeling disoriented in the world, a cause for feeling scared, feeling nervous and anxious. All those feelings are certainly there, and we acknowledge them in ourselves and in the Muslim community in general. That being said, I think that this is the time that we can return back to our sources, rely back on two things, I would certainly say. One is our faith. And in that faith, what is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, right? You you mentioned that it feels like there is no relief. And certainly relief is delayed. If you look at the stories of Bani Israel in the Quran and other prophets, the relief that they received was delayed. The prophets used to say, where is the help of Allah in the Quran? And the help of Allah came. 
So Allah will make us wait. And we hope that the Imam of our time, may Allah hasten his reappearance, comes soon. And we know for certain that he will reappear. So going back to our uh, faith, I think that waiting for relief is through hope. And uh, Marhum Sayyid Asad had a beautiful lecture when he first started speaking about, uh, just started speaking as a khatib in Qom. He talked about hope. I remember that. One was for one of his first lectures at someone's house. It was about hope. And he talked about hope for our youth. You know, that was his narrative. And he was talking about finding hope in the deen. And I'm not going to forget that message for him, from him. So I have hope. And our faith gives us hope in, a, in Allah who is just in Allah who has uh, sent down all the prophets and helped them when they needed help. And certainly Allah will send us help uh, to to address all these emotional and, and psychological wounds that they are, we are all getting. The second thing I will say is that there are people who belong to different faiths who are also serving us within our own faith. For example, counselors, therapists, chaplains, all everyone in the helping profession, or non-Muslims who are interested in helping and building bridges. So this is the time when those resources that we had, let's say, in peacetime, are are we we can revisit those resources and go back. I mean, I have friends who are not Muslim um, in terms of an interfaith relationship, and we talk, and now is the the time that the connections that we made before are becoming useful and we're supporting each other. So I would certainly invite all of us to kind of be aware of the help that we need and the things that we've already had in the past as resources that um, that we can revisit, inshallah. Yeah. No, that's true about the spirituality, being able to provide some relief and turning to counselors. I think the day-to-day -day sometimes can feel very difficult because you wake up and for that moment you forget kind of or you don't remember and then you remember everything you're like okay what's what's now what's next what are they going to do now like how am I supposed to continue my day-to-day -day knowing that I've lost a spiritual guide and I see all this happening to so many parts of our community are there tactile approaches maybe that you have to help get us through those moments? Because it it is every day and it's multiple times a day where you're like, oh my God, this isn't even worth it. Like my job, whatever it is, isn't worth it because the world's on fire. It doesn't matter, but we can't have that approach. Yeah, yeah. I think um, first thing is, I mean, there's many different elements to, to the question you asked. That's a, that's a big question about what can we do? I think... First off is taking a break from social media, right? So what is usually called doom scrolling is on your feed on whatever social media platform you are on, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, whatever it is, you will constantly see these images and these snippets of, of, of traumatic events that are happening to our Muslim brothers and sisters in Palestine and, other, and in other places, sadly. So take a break, you know, make sure you measure the time that you're being exposed to this because that will have a very deep um, psychological impact on you. Secondly, increase the amount of time that you're spending praying. Alhamdulillah, we have a great amount of resources within our deen. The duas that our fourth Imam has 
for those who are oppressed, for those who are on frontiers. So dua, not just as a ritual, but dua as a resource uh, for spiritual strength and rejuvenation because that builds hope and that gives us knowledge of Allah's justice. So those are two things I would recommend. And the third thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I would recommend is there are therapists available, counselors available. It's a whole different question on how to approach them, but certainly approaching them and finding them and building that uh, counseling relationship with them will provide a resource for us to talk through this and process um, all the trauma and the, the the news that we are receiving and give us strength actually and build us and give us resilience so that we may be able to help those who are needing our help. Yeah, I think earlier on, maybe it was like a couple of weeks ago when this first all started, you just, you couldn't stop looking at your phone. It, it was unreal. You just kept scrolling. And I think we went to Masjid, I think it was just for Thursday night program, but they read that dua from Sahifa the Sajabia. And there was something about being connected with our community and reciting dua together that lifted a bit of the heaviness. You remembered you weren't alone. So I think I would recommend that if it's possible for people as well. Um, yes. And one thing I will add to that, sister, is publicly, privately, professionally, Muslims might react in fear already because we have gone through events of Islamophobia. We've gone through multiple things of Islamophobia. You know, a young young boy sadly lost his life in Illinois after all these events be began. So we kind of have to not be afraid and we have to speak up and advocate for our right to speak up and to voice our concerns and opinions publicly. That's very important. I see as a chaplain at the university, students reacting in different ways. Um, Muslim students not being able to understand what is happening to them. So you kind of have to push them to say that there are ways that if someone harasses you, then you have to report it. You have to hold them accountable. You have to stand up and advocate for yourself. That is also one way of kind of empowering ourselves um, with our deen as well. Yeah. So I wanted to ask what got you into this profession? Did you want to do anything else in life or was this kind of always the goal, always the target? Um, I think uh, going back to uh, Marhum uh, Sayyid Asad, you know, we were in Qum together from 2005 to 10. He was there in 2004, and I got there in five. And the next five years, we were together as family, as brothers-in-law. And when he came back, he, of course, chose the path of uh, serving the community directly and becoming a khatib. And we had some very interesting conversations that I will cherish as well about what to do Um you know, just in terms of serving the community. And he also recognized that there were certain needs that needed to be fulfilled. Um, I had some mentors, I had some friends from our Shia community that encouraged me to get into chaplaincy. So I saw that as a resource because, uh, you know, Muslims being admitted to hospitals, what is their experience like? Who is there to advocate for their needs? How is it that they can find uh, basic things that they need, for example, for prayer, for halal food, uh, for hijab and other things that they may need as patients. So that's where my journey began. Alhamdulillah, I've come a long distance in different ways. But 
But I think um, to answer your question, it would be the need was there and the opportunity to get some training as a chaplain was there so that we could address those needs in the medical system. And that's how I kind of ex started exploring these fields. Mashallah, it's amazing what the work you've done. So you work as a chaplain in hospitals as well as prisons in Wisconsin, oftentimes with people that are forgotten by our community, the ill, the incarcerated. Could you share some of your insight, maybe some of the stories you've seen, some that have really kind of affected you and touched your heart? Yeah. Um, so, for example, you know, it's also the process of, of, of being there for those who are ill and those who are sick and those who are not able to move and get out of the prison, for example, providing them with books, providing them with Qurans, providing them with resources that they need to build their faith. In the hospital, you know, imagine yourself or anybody, may Allah give help to everyone, but uh, anyone being admitted to the hospital um, for example, there was a lady, uh, there was a Sudanese lady who was admitted to the hospital when I was there. And there was a note on the door saying, please knock and ask permission before entering. Because when you entered the room, there was a curtain and behind the curtain, she was there. And she wanted to make sure that if any male care caregivers are coming, she wanted to be wearing her hijab. So the staff didn't know what was going on and didn't realize, you know, what the need was. So my role as Muslim chaplain was to explain, hey, this is what hijab is. This is the concept of hijab. And this is what she really wants is some privacy so she can cover herself before someone shows up. And alhamdulillah, they made sure that all the nurses that were coming into the room after my discussion were female so that the patient felt a little bit more comfortable. So those are small everyday things that continue in, in the role of, of a chaplain and I find that to be rewarding. And I find that that certain stories like these that come up again and again are the result of, of, of solidarity and strength being built across, across all denominations and faiths um, as Muslims, alhamdulillah. Yeah. And what about prisons? Is it Was it scary to go in for the first time? Or did you meet anyone that really affected you? Because I think that is a population that often really gets kind of left behind. Yeah, I, I think I will say that with prisons, um, you know, we as Muslims are not sadly free of certain ills that are in society like racism or classism. We have that. We're not immune from it, even though our religion says any believer um, who believes as a Muslim is equal to you. So when I first had that experience, the prison population comes from a certain demographic and certain background, and it takes time to build trust with them. But I also saw that they were very much in need of the deen because the system that had put them there, the faith that they had previously followed did not answer their questions. In prison, and this is someone who was in prison that was telling me, you have a lot of time to think. You have a lot of time yeah. to think about very, sure. <laughs> yeah, very detailed things about religion and theology. So Islam being presented to them, sending Qurans and books to them is a way of yeah. filling that need. And Alhamdulillah, some brothers I've witnessed uh, come out of the system very, very 
learning about their deen because they had so much time to prepare, uh, even though they were in, incarcerated. So that's one factor that we need to kind of advocate and, and support. Yeah. Was it scary going into prison the first time? I think I would be scared. <laughs> I will admit that I was nervous. Not yeah. scared, but, but nervous scared. about how I will be received and seen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Our mustards can do more to be a bit welcoming for those who are re-entering society and, and pay their debt to society and have gone through, like you said, a traumatic experience because of the racism that exists, the stigmas that exist. We would be doing a service to them if we would be more welcoming. We just often aren't. It just doesn't occur to us, I think, to do that outreach, maybe. Um, I think outreach is a skill. Outreach is a process. It's a project. Any community or masjid needs experts who know how to do this kind of outreach. They have the education, they have the training and the sensitivity to do this outreach. Uh, I mean, it might be a lot to ask of any community to be able to do it right away. But yes. again, if if we get someone trained and someone interested who's got the inclination, then inshallah, it can be a very successful um, kind of a project. Yeah, that's actually something we did in Houston was build a Shia mosque kind of in an area of town that's not really frequented by most of our members because there were people there who were interested in Islam, but they didn't know about the Shia faith. So it, it just took that, okay, I think we should open something here. It, it can be small, it can be tiny, but it can be just something for people to come to, to learn about the faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to start small and there's st small steps uh, of outreach. Uh, chaplaincy training, actually, I'll just say, by the way, is very easy in terms of finding chaplaincy training. Uh, there are units that people can get under their belt uh, from ulama to laypersons, anyone can do that. And once you get into the field, you kind of get an idea of how these things work in, in hospitals and prisons. And then you can just, the wheel has, has already been invented. You can just uh, see how it's being done by other communities and just follow suit. So there are resources out there, certainly. Do you have any specific examples of smaller things maybe that we could start with that are communities for those listening who maybe want to go back to their masjids and say, you know, I think we can try this, even if not everyone wants to get on board um, to try and be more welcoming, to try and get some people who were incarcerated and help them. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I would start with where we can get the training and the knowledge to be able to do that. So, so I would say that chaplaincy, for example, and there's a large Muslim chaplain presence in the country alhamdulillah we have the association of muslim chaplains that are that are a big number of muslim chaplains i have uh, been part of this organization for a number of years alhamdulillah we are in fellowship as muslims from all backgrounds uh, shia sunni and more muslims from all diverse um, disciplines from hospitals hospice university prisons and it's kind of a national platform to encourage Muslims to get into the field and or maybe even gain the competencies needed. So I would say uh, start with the basic chaplaincy training. And if it's a good chaplaincy program, it will open up those doors 
by itself of how to provide outreach, uh, be more welcoming. And if you have a person leading this and being the liaison uh, with hospitals or prisons, then that will make a difference. But if there's someone who wants to volunteer, they can start with uh, basic chaplaincy training. I would recommend that. Okay. That's a great resource that people can look into. Could you discuss maybe some of the resources for mental health, specifically around grief, trauma, anxiety, and depression, and how to find these resources? I think some of us might be a little bit hesitant, kind of the stigma around it. What will people think if they find out all of those kinds of things? I think the stigma is slowly going away, but I think sometimes the stigma could just be internal. Like, no, I'm, I'm fine. Like, if I reach out, that means I'm not perfect or I'm not well there's something wrong with me and if you could provide some of those resources and maybe those first baby steps to take to try and get some help yeah so mental health is another field um i am halfway through a degree in in mental health counseling and i anticipate to degree, uh, graduate next year or such inshallah and some credit goes to marhum sayyid asad who encouraged me to continue this kind of helping field and and get into mental health counseling. Uh, the basics for 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 mental health. Um, to answer your question, sister, is is that there is stigma because we in the Muslim cultures, Eastern cultures, whatever it is, they see Khoja, uh, Iraqi, Irani. Uh, we don't see the need for mental health as a essential. Someone who is struggling with depression or anxiety or trauma, or maybe even other mental uh, disorders that they have, we see that as a handicap. We see that as something full of shame rather than moving forward to address and help that. This is a cultural issue that's other cultures are also not immune from this kind of shame and stigma. So, and the second thing is finding help, finding the proper help is not easy. Knowing where to look is also not easy. And then opening up to a complete stranger about your own personal life and details is not easy at all. So all those obstacles are actually tangible, real obstacles, and they can be addressed one by one. Um, there are organizations now that provide, there are Muslim organizations, uh, like, let's say, uh, Khalil Center, which is in different parts of the country. Um, there are other organizations. There's one at Stanford where they're advocating for studying um, the mental health needs of the Muslim community. So there are very good Muslim organizations that are kind of opening up this discussion. That's one. Secondly, people who need mental help can look in their insurance directory and see who the psychologist or therapist is. And people should know the difference, basic difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a counselor and a therapist. Sometimes those are interchangeable, but that's certainly there. And then third thing is building that counseling relationship with someone new is hard. It takes time and people are reluctant, but going there, talking to this person, trusting them, finding that they are responsive <clears throat> excuse me, to you, finding someone that you're comfortable with, Muslim or non-Muslim, but someone who's actually uh, wanting to help you uh, then that would be a good starting space for getting the help. 
And also group therapy is something possible. So if you have a community and masjid where you have a counselor, Muslim counselor, male or female available, they can start leading groups for grief therapy and other things that can be done in group with certain rules. But that's also an option, inshallah. I'm anticipating that in the next few years, this will open up and we'll have more people in the field. That is my hope. Yeah. Are there um, certain health, mental health concerns that you've seen more than others in our community? I would say in general, whatever is common in the in, in public, uh, which is anxiety and, and depression and trauma, is certainly there in the Muslim community. We're not immune from that. Um, but we still don't have the language to address it. We don't have the language to articulate it. Um, from a religious perspective, um, that that bridge needs to be built in a way that we can find the language to 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 address what it is, and then find the help without being kind of too intrusive in people's personal lives, but at the same time finding resources. So I would say those three things are most commonly seen. Yeah. So with the current events, it's kind of hard to maintain like the energy to keep going like there is this feeling of maybe not complete hopelessness but sometimes just hopelessness there is this feeling of it's not getting better you know the the energy is draining you go to one or two protests but nothing's changing at least you know stateside here the politics are one way and what what do you suggest to people who are feeling that drain that feeling of what's the point of continuing my job? What's like, how do we keep going our normal daily lives, which are not normal at all anymore? I don't think we'd know how, like I was telling someone the other day, so I don't even know what I was doing before all this started. Like, what was I wasting my time on? And it's hard to maintain that kind of day-to-day -day energy to keep going with everything that's happening. Um, it feels like this weight almost that you can't get rid of. But you don't want to get rid of because you feel like everyone's enlightened as well. Because before, I mean, the idea of even saying Philistine was was not possible. I mean, you said that was worse than a curse word almost. I mean, it was that dangerous to say, but now you see it everywhere. So it's amazing to see on the one hand, but then it's just hard to see on the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to what I had kind of uh, hinted at earlier or pointed to earlier is that is that you know if you look at the history of Islam and you look at the history of Karbala specifically you see that the Ahlul Bayt is be upon them after all the traumatic events that happened in, in Karbala to the family of the Prophet and the suffering that they had and the persecution and the trauma and the massacres you see that there's still resilience. And that resilience is, is built. For example, the fourth Imam salam, lived for 35 years after Karbala. He lived in Medina. And what we see in his life, or Lady Zainab, peace be upon her life, is uh, what we will call in psychology emotional regulation. How to regulate yourself. Because imagine yourself walking through the day and you have things that you lift. And whatever you're lifting emotionally becomes heavier or it's new to you or it's strange to you and you don't know what that object looks like 
or where it begins or where it ends, but you just feel its weight, like you're saying. And how do you regulate that, right? So you build resilience. Uh, first, you go back to the faith. You go back to the musalla, which actually is where you are kind of rejuvenated and you're weaponized for the day. So for me personally, since all this began, I found myself reflecting more on my faith and saying, what is my faith calling me to do in this time? And, and what did the Ahlul Bayt do in certain times like this? Uh, so certainly I think I'm grateful for having our du'as and our Quran as real tangible things that I can connect with uh, on a daily basis. And, and that gives me space. Second thing is, again, control your social media consumption. That will really affect how much time. You know, I have a timer on my phone with how much time I spend. And oh, wow. it just alerts me. It says time's yeah. up for social media consumption. So I put that away and I read a book yeah. or do something else. Yeah. Um, do daily activities like exercise um, and, and eating healthy. Because the people who are suffering, the people who are there in Gaza and Palestine dying every single day, they need us to speak out for them. They need us to be healthy and strong yeah. for them. So we kind of have to feel that responsibility for them. So these are some of the things that, that are not easy. They're not easy because we have to pivot and adjust. And what was normal before, like you said, is not normal now. And we don't know what will happen um, in 2024. So, so, so we hope and pray in Allah's mercy, but the human being is a resilient and strong uh, creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we kind of have to reach back and see where that weight is and how we can shift it to, to function and to regulate ourselves. Yeah, uh, that that future part is always really scary because you're like, if this is what's happening now, what on earth will happen next year? Like, how bad is this going to get? Like, not the doom scrolling, but almost the doom thinking. You're just like, where is this going? Because it doesn't seem like it's going well. Yeah, but the, those who that those that are believers, right, are going to be successful. The, you know, people the time the people of the time aren't lost except those who believe in and, and act and do right. So there is there is hope and salvation and there is hope and success, but that's only through through faith and iman, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw something on social media. It was you know people in Gaza praying and someone had commented, they said, I'm so interested in this faith that th these people believe in where all this is happening to them and they're still praying thanks to God. And this curiosity of Islam has kind of stemmed from this, that inherent faith that they have. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it really is. There are many stories, um, true verified stories from different yes. chaplains I've spoken to at universities and other places that people have become more interested in Islam uh, because of, 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 of the solidarity of that faith across the globe. And really, it's a global force that you can feel the pain and suffering of someone there. And you can also feel the success of, of someone, you know, like uh, Marhum Sayyid Asad, for example. He was someone who connected the Muslim Ummah in many, many ways. And we, he talked and advocated for Palestine, no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but there is a tangible connection that is a force between all Muslims. And we need to kind of tap into that as a, a strength, a source of strength and guidance for ourselves and others as well. Yeah. So kind of as, as I've been doing this podcast over the past year and speaking to different people, I've encountered 
kind of opinions and what other speakers have seen as the biggest issue, whether it's kind of the uni kids or, you know, the 30s and the 40s. Is there something that you've seen more than anything else as a problem that you think if the community doesn't step in and fix this, this could really hurt us in the next few years? For example, um, drug addiction, drug overdoses, that's come up quite a bit of time. And then the other one, you know, for older people, people outside uni, you know, finding the right spouse or infidelity, divorce, kind of those two groups. Have you seen something that you feel like the community really does need to do more to step in and help people? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of things that need to be done, as you know. Um, I will say two things that come to mind that are, I think, most urgent. One of them is addressing the needs of young men. The population that I've seen in terms of mental health in our Shia communities that are in need of guidance most are males between the age of 18 and 24. Uh, we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a society where the idea of masculinity has changed. The idea of femininity has changed. Um, and the role, the role models for men have become very different. If you look at political figures and how they are as men and how they treat women, some of them, that is where society is pointing to when it comes to what is a, the question of what is a man. And that has caused anxiety, depression, suicide, attempted suicide. This is, I'm just talking from our community and my experience in the past couple of years amongst young men. So, so there are resources. There are several good scholars and speakers who've talked about the idea of uh, this toxic or defeated masculinity and how to address that mm -hmm. and how to kind of bring us back to the idea of an Islamic idea of masculinity that we see in our Ahlul Bayt and the Prophets, peace be upon them. So that's certainly one. Um, and I'm not trying to ignore any of the other needs of of, of, yeah. of of sisters or anyone else. No, not at the cost of anyone else, but this is one of the things that we can pay attention to. Um, secondly, I would also advocate for, for building resources for mental health. We have a lot of professionals. Um, there are a lot of people who are not even Muslim, but but can be very good allies for providing mental health resources for Muslim communities, for Shia communities. Again, it just needs a liaison and a person who has the passion to uh, get into that and build those resources so that all the mental health uh, wellness concerns can be dealt with gradually one by one uh, in our communities. I would say that it's easier than we think to find those resources um, amongst mental health professionals so that the community folks and the, each congregation in Jamaat can can have someone to kind of rely on and go to when we have this need and, and provide the education about it as well. Yeah, those are two really powerful insights and we've kind of, we've heard them before and it's kind of scary to hear them a few times because you know it's a real problem. It's not just in one city, for example. It's not like, well, this is just in New York City or something like that. It seems to be pervasive um, just with social media, with everyone on their phones. Like, you can't really escape any of it. Um, so my last question for you, how can we implement our deen more in order to have the wakil? I think this, this concept, the wakil, is the most beautiful thing in the world but it's 
sometimes the hardest to live from the heart, if that makes sense. I think it's when you're at that bottom, that the local, you, you, you do ask, where are you a lot? Like, or have you forgotten me? Have you not heard my duas? Yeah. Um, the way that I like to approach it and approach it with my students as well is is go back to the stories because what tawakkul is tawakkul is the need for us to tell our story to Allah and to find a response in what Allah is giving us that's what tawakkul is tawakkul is saying I am in crisis I am in trouble I feel that I'm sinking or I feel the anxiety or the fear or the trauma that's going on and I need you, Allah, to hear me. And what is it? So so when you say all those things, you're kind of weaving your story in front of Allah. You're telling your narrative that this is what's happening in the world. This is what's happening in my life. This is what's happening in my family and so on. Yeah. And when you look to the Quran, you look at the stories and the narratives in the Quran. With my uh, some of my students, we are covering the story of Nabi Musa. Salam. And when I read his story, I say, wow, he went through a lot himself, right? Yeah. Uh, being separated from his mother, growing up in a household that really was not um, suitable to his own spirituality. There was no kind of match for who he was and the household of Firhon where he grew up, right? Yeah. So there's, there's discord there, <laughs> right? Right. Then being banished to this faraway land, then starving and finding... Uh, a resource where he got married, then wandering into the wilderness again and coming back home. Yeah. There's all these things that Nabi Musa and other prophets in the Quran have gone through. And and when I go back, I, I read the story, not just the verses. Yeah. I read the story and I say, well, all this happened to these holy great people. Go back to the Ahlul Bayt, it happened to them. So I'm like, my story is part of their story now. Or where am I compared to them if Allah has given them success and help after mm -hmm. suffering, after crises, Allah will do the same for me. You right. know, I have to continue to complain only to Allah and I have to continue to uh, rely, like you said, tawakkul. because when you, when you tell your story, then you feel the relief that there's a kind of a echo of your story in 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 their stories that Allah has talked about in the Quran that's that's one healing mechanism uh that that's very important that's such an interesting perspective i never thought about it that way and i think it was um marhum Jeffrey's lecture on prophet musa he gave i think one ramadan he was the first year of covid if i'm not mistaken and everyone bought that book the emissaries of god and it was like sold out cuz we all wanted to read the story um, yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. It's an important one for us to keep in mind. So thank you so much, Sayed, for our discussion today. Join us again next month. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us on Sukun, a Muslim wellness podcast by Nazimko. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website, www.nazimko.org. You can also listen to Nazimko Radio available on our website, www.nazimko.org and the Nisimco app available on Google Play Store and Apple App Store. 
Nisimco Radio brings you the latest news, insightful discussions, and spiritual guidance from prominent scholars. Tune in for enriching content that brings communities together. Your contributions will enable us to maintain the quality and reach of Nisimco Radio and the Schoon Podcast. Your support will empower us to continue fostering unity, knowledge, and spiritual growth within our community. To keep this vital work going, please consider donating under general fund on www.nasimco.org. Until next time, salam alaikum.